0: Welcome to Modern Anarchy the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo I'm your host Nicole shes on today's episode we have Aaron Johnson join us for a conversation about finding touch balance. Together we talk about the importance of tenderness, how narratives of oppression shape sexuality, and liberating our voices from capitalism. Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to another episode of Modern Anarchy. I am so delighted that you are tuning in for another episode with me and Joining this large global community of pleasure activists who are challenging the status quo, asking deeper questions about what it means to be connected to our pleasure and how to collectively work towards that together as a movement. So, welcome back. I am really excited to share this episode with you today, dear listener. Erin is doing such profound and truly life changing work with touch activism. Dear listener, you know, if you have been tuning in to the many episodes of this podcast, that I have talked again and again about the importance of our somatic experience, right? Being connected to the ways that our emotions are felt in the body. This is often a piece that gets completely left out in the field of psychology, which is wild to me, right? When you're crying, when you're sad, and you're happy, these are all experiences that we feel in the body. We talk about top-down processing a lot, right? Where we can be thinking about something you're worried about and that impacts maybe that tightness you're feeling in your chest or that rumbling in your stomach. But we also have bottom-up processing, right? The ways that we can start from the body to impact the mind. So maybe we're slowing down with a breath. Maybe we're going for a run to shake out that energy or yeah, taking that boxing class to shake out that energy, right? There's so many different ways that our psychological experience is deeply connected to our body. And the importance of touch in that, oh dear listener, it is so crucial that we have touch in our lives and particularly if we look back at childhood development, it is such an important piece for our neurodevelopment. During my doctoral training, I took a class on trauma and we read the book, The Boy Who Was Raised a Dog. This is a heavy read, but if you are interested in hearing some real life examples clinically from psychiatrist Dr. Bruce Perry on how a lack of touch, a lack of nurturing touch, or relational support impacts our neurodevelopment and our psychological functioning, I would highly recommend checking out this book. And given how crucial it is for our early development, right, it makes sense that this would be a need as we continue to live out our lives. And we know that, yes, the patriarchy affects women and all people, but it also particularly affects men, right? In patriarchal cultures, there's often this discouragement of any open expression of vulnerability. Sometimes society will call these the more, quote unquote, feminine, (laughs) god the feminine emotions of tenderness and love or softness and tears right i hope you can hear the sarcasm and air quotes in my voice when i say that because these are emotions that we all have however under a patriarchal culture men are specifically taught to repress their emotions They're supposed to be strong, resilient, tough, and have truly like a level of stoicism to all of life. That is what we see in the media, right? And so men grow up and see these examples and feel like that's what it means to be a man. And any ask for support then is seen as a sign of weakness rather than the strength that it is to be so vulnerable, And unfortunately, the reality is then, of course, not all men in this, right? I know many wonderful men in my life who are not this, but the majority of men that grow up in these patriarchal societies then have very limited emotional vocabulary. They have not been in communities with other men where people talk about the emotions that they're experiencing and naming that, and without that sort of modeling, then men often lack emotional insight to be able to identify and articulate their emotions, which ultimately limits the possibilities of connection in relationships. And surely this is also going to impact conversations around consent, right? And the ability to give pleasure, particularly giving pleasure without ego getting in the way of needing to get their partner to come a certain amount of times to feel like they've actually succeeded as men, right? There are so many implications to this and the larger conversations we've been having on the podcast together. And the impacts of patriarchy don't just stop at emotions. It also limits men's access to physical affection and support, right? At a certain age, you gotta man up and deal with it, and you no longer need a hug when you're having a difficult day, and that touch, lack, has deep implications for all of our pleasure. All of us. I don't care what gender you are, it has implications for all of us, because remember, we're all in this together, as a community, and our liberation is tied together with one another. I think it's also important to name that when there is this lack of touch and this lack of ability to articulate emotions, then we can see a lot of men craving sex. And obviously sex is lovely. Being able to play and find pleasure in intimacy is so, so, so great. You know I am so sex positive in this space. However, we have to name the reality that A lot of men will crave sex because it's so hard to get intimacy in other ways and because it's hard to communicate their needs and desires verbally, so it's much easier to step into a space where there's that physicality to achieve that. And so I think that's also an important conversation here, and Erin definitely hits on that as well, of the ways that this lack of touch impacts sex and impacts pleasure for all people. Now, we also have to take into consideration the intersecting identities that are at play here. So sure, this impacts you if you're a cis man, right? But this also impacts you to a different degree when you're a man of color, right? A black man. And Aaron specifically talks about the ways that the black brute narrative impacts black men and their access to necessary touch. And I appreciated how, towards the end of the conversation, Erin mentioned that this is an ongoing and collective conversation as we continue to examine the ways that societal systems impact our perception of reality. We have to remember that we are all fish living in the water of oppression, and there truly is no end to examining the ways that this water is subconsciously affecting our perceptions of both ourselves and others around us. So I appreciate you, dear listener, for tuning in and continuing to explore these conversations, continuing to have these conversations in your community. I also really enjoyed the ways that Aaron talked about expanding our touch practice. Dear listener, when was the last time that you placed your feet in the earth? You took off your shoes, you took off the socks, and you placed your feet into that earth and felt it in your body? When was the last time that you felt the grooves of an old tree on your fingertips? Or sat in the stillness to feel the wind on your skin? Y'all, in Chicago it is so cold. We just had our first snowy day and man, I was outside walking and that cold wind was definitely touching my face and... Uh, It was so cold that uh, my eyes just continued to water down both sides profusely, so I am definitely in my touch practice for the winter, (laughs) whether I want to be or not, so I hope wherever you are in the world that you're staying connected to your touch practice and staying warm wherever you might be, but truly, I just want to invite you, dear listener, to reflect on what is your touch practice? What is your community's touch practice? Is there someone that maybe could benefit from having a bit more platonic touch in your community? What sort of conversations could you bring up about integrating this? There is so much here in this conversation from Erin's expertise that I am delighted to share with you today, dear listener. So Know that wherever you might be in the world, you are a part of the modern anarchy community and that I am sending you a hug, a consensual, as long as you want it, hug, all the way from cold Chicago today. And with that, let's tune into today's episode. So, then the first question I like to ask each guest is How would you introduce yourself to the listeners?
1: Mm, Yeah, I am a touch activist. I'm the middle child of five. I'm a desert being. I live in the desert and have been there for the last 20 plus years. I am a full time activist as well. I'm really committed to dismantling oppression at the micro levels, at the macro levels. I don't care if we're in a grocery store or if we're in the middle of a land transfer over 100 acres, I'm still in the space of how can we do this and dismantling oppression as much as possible. And I think in, in most cases, I surprise myself on how I'm able to show up in unique context, tenderly. And I think tenderness is one of my interruptive. I would say even powers, um, mm. particularly in my Black cis male body. Tenderness is not always available for my positionality in America. So when it does happen, I think it interrupts the landscape a bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm also an artist and mentor, and I really cherish genuine authentic connection. Yeah. That's how I'm entering today, and that's probably mm. I'm in that nutshell.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited that you're here and to get to share this conversation with all of the listeners and i'm excited to talk about your story your journey your personal connection to this topic i'd love if you could take up the space to tell your story and share that with the listeners wherever that starts for you however far back i'd love to hear it
1: yeah i think for myself it starts probably a couple of weeks before i was born when mm-hmm. i think about the kind of stories that were told My mother is a a pastor and I remember for years she would just preach about before I was born what she was going through. Her mother was dying Mm -hmm. and her mother was really close to her. And so I was in her womb and she didn't want me to, she couldn't relax enough to allow me to, to be born. And I remember her saying that she unplugged the phone from the wall. This is like 1982 and uh it's like a landline and and when she unplugged the phone from the wall she knew that no one could call her and tell her her mother had passed and so because of that moment she was able to go into labor and so what i what i pick up from that story is that my mom was in grief Mm. i was born may 30th 1982 my grandmother which is my mother's mother passed away i think two or three days after i was born and i feel that because there's a way in which I came into the world with a mother that was in grief. And so I think as a child, we absorb a lot of that grief. And so I think it wasn't surprising when she says, "Aaron just loved the cuddle. I think I was already responding to this grief that was in the air, right? We couldn't really help that. We kind of lost. And so I snuggled and loved the snuggle from literally birth. Yeah. And so I felt one of the things that happens to particularly Black cis men is that we get all this cuddling and tender care off Oftentimes, from zero to four to five years old, and then it drops off. And I think for me, as much as I had a very loving family and siblings, there was a definitely a drop off in my my touch needs. Probably when I was too big to pick up, I imagine I was like five or six. I have mm-hmm. clear memories of that point. So I go to like my journey. I can skip ahead, but when I skip ahead, I just want to kind of go from five years old to seventeen years old. And when I go from those gaps, there's really no place in our particular conservative Christian home for touch, platonic touch specifically to be skilled, to be practiced. And when I go to the mainstream culture, there was actually no music videos about cuddling or platonic touch or models for me or a safe touch between black men, cis black men and cis black men. So I had zero, zero actual modeling. Mm. And that came to head probably into my 20s. So I'm going in like 28, 29, 28. When I really started to re-examine, I've been dating for a while. I was moved out of the home. I had, so I was at a place of like life design in my mid to late twenties. And again, there was a vacuum of of modeling of what it looked like to be a cis straight black male and being tender to other. And so I just started working on my own personal journey. And so right around there, I was about to get married. I was engaged to get married. I remember having a conversation about not crying in 20 years. Which is wow. attached to my touch, and not having any black cis men or any kind of practice that felt safe. And we could box, we could play basketball, we could wrestle, but no safe touch, mm-hmm. no tenderness. So that's when it kind of birthed the idea of like, I need to work on this. I don't know where to start. We need to work on it.
0: Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on the yeah, where that messaging comes from or how that started?
1: Yeah, the messaging, I think, as I've been studying this for the last 10 years, there's a couple of things that's important. I've traced it back to the invention of the Black Brute. And I think there's so many examples outside of the United States, other countries where Black men don't have the trauma story of the Black Brute directly shaping their reality. They're holding hands, walking down the street. on continent of Africa, there's so many villages and spaces where men literally sit straight, men friends walk down the street, hold each other's hand. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Where I see that disappear is where we look at slavery and the Black Brute narratives being pushed into the media well before slavery is over, but post-slavery, we saw this invention of the Black Brute and the Black Brute narrative says, we are strong in our body, muscular, a super high and wild or uncontrolled sexual desire, low intelligence. This is the propaganda machine that started to move. And I think there's a way when I look around. I think the modern day most invested image is still the black brute narrative. It's the you know UFC or NFL. These are all places where the black brute narrative is so present. And so I think to me the origin story feels very clear attached to the propaganda of how oppression shapes the narrative around black sexuality, particularly black male sexuality in America, using the black brute as a fundamental defining space. And so where I go from mainstream Hollywood to the NFL, to the UFC, to the NBA, to modern day pornography, I see this consistent theme of the hyper-sexualized black male and the erasure of a tender, complex, intellectual, consent-conscious black male. That's not invested in, in a mainstream, but we've seen little drips and drops here and there. And it pops up, but there's a mainstream investment the young man and myself early on had a hard time finding it. And even now, as I do as a professional and investigate, it's still hard to find. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And you were saying that you started to notice that at five. Yeah. Five years old. Yeah. What do you think you needed at that time that maybe you didn't get?
1: I think models and yeah. normalizing tender touch between all beings, but specifically between cis black men and cis black men. That was the rarest thing to find is to see cis black men cuddling being close just being tender tending to each other one has emotions one tends to just modeling this behavior mm-hmm. yeah you know we could really tend to each other oftentimes when i saw other boys even get hurt you know their mother tended to and their father didn't mm-hmm. come over and model that for a variety of reasons so i think for me this models would have been huge especially mm-hmm. as i got older yeah
0: hence the work that you're doing now right being that yeah. model of this yeah yeah and the crying piece too to not cry for 20 years I'm just you know like how is that landing for you
1: I mean I think tears are so attached to tenderness it's mm-hmm. attached to emotional intelligence and you know I I took me two years working on my my tears the amazing counselor and holder of, of space before I had my first tears. And she did a skillful job of just allowing me to be, we worked on it for like once a week for for two years. And for myself, there's a clear picture of having to forge space, having to create a nest to where my body felt safe enough to, to be real about what was happening inside. And I think in that it was probably one of the biggest emotional shifts I had in my adult life is to access tears. If You, you know, I haven't cried in 20 years up to that point. And so it's like my face kind of blew off, you know, it's just like a, a buildup of big emotions. And so I think in that it was the foundational work to go strictly from accessing tears to there's no surprise within a year I was working on my, my platonic touch plan. And I didn't have the language back then for a comprehensive touch plan, but that's exactly what I was doing for myself. And mm-hmm. maybe about two years after, three years after that, I started building one. For our mentee and that's what kind of started the journey so to me that tears working on getting access to my emotional profile I'll yeah. say, it wasn't just tears it was rage that was hidden it was mm. grief that was hidden it was you know kind of this, i think sometimes we go rage grief pleasure but it was there they were kind of woven there had i had joy that was dark i had pleasure that was grief i had so i started realizing how many ways i could be and so that's what that was. So Tears was a, a kind of a marker, but it was so much more of me. Like, oh, I've been really? smothering a big more ray, a big variety of emotions that I didn't even have. It was like just kind of mm. I think I was stuck in this kind of masculine, numb, yeah. appearing to be okay vibe for so long that that was like the emotion. Like nothing was too high or too low. It was all right there in this kind of middle ground of, of numb, masculine presentation of everything's okay. And that everything could be still be okay and I can also weep for 20 minutes yeah. everything still be okay actually things will main ma- actually be okay <laughs> I actually get access to my it's, it's actually gonna be okay if I'm actually able to move some advice I didn't realize the kind of circular momentum that emotions allowed my nervous system to do and then that for now I think that my ground is more based upon not the presentation of calmness but the actual lived experience of being grounded and calm. And of course I have stress in my life and of course there's things that test my nervous system, but there's a way that I don't just jump to the performance. I, I jump to what's, what is actually here, but actually here means I can go lay down on my back on earth for 45 minutes. That's, okay. what actually that yeah. That's what's here. And so I think for me, there's a way in which my body is now shaped differently because of my emotions are able to be in a complete, uh, I said complete is a big word, but in a much more flowing state and i'm creating an where people around me have had the capacity to engage with my nervous system and engage with me they don't panic when i start to cry they're like what is happening here it's like oh this is actually a part of who Aaron is and that's supposed really to nice
0: yeah have you had like other reactions in that in the past
1: early yeah because i'm good mm. i mean for 20 years i was known as a dude that can walk in and if there's a rat in the house you call Aaron. if you if you yeah. if someone dies you call Aaron. if our, our home, our community, our black community has four to five deaths per year. And so I would attend funeral after funeral for that 20 years. And I would be the one that would just be holding it for everyone else. So mm. it would be the kind of the, the identity that people identify me as. I wouldn't yeah. cry. I'd just be like, how are you? You're good. You're good. I'm got yeah. you. I got you. That was just yeah. So everyone looked at me as this rock uh, consistency. It was like, I was celebrated as the kind of being that was before. So yes, when I started feeling a lot of people had to start adjusting to oh wait is Aaron okay or how do we hold ah. Aaron what would that be like for us to actually hold him not just him holding us in this kind of numb masculine role which is important not in the numb part but there's a role that I can play but I also can play the same role with tears mm-hmm. and so for me it was definitely an adjustment in all my relationships and and Ooh. you know it takes a couple of years but people really start to appreciate it and understand what is happening I just kept I've, I've gone this now it's like a part of my actual job so I think everyone around me is definitely more uh, accustomed to either a full emotional experience or know that we're inviting that in. So in my current environment, this doesn't feel shocking to the system. Yeah,
0: yeah, but it makes sense. Like you said, that people wouldn't be used to that, right? You were such this rock, the stable person. So to have the emotions would be such a shift and that they wouldn't know how to handle that. So it makes sense there'd be that large shift for your community as well around you, yeah. I'd be curious then like when you were holding those emotions and being that rock, you know, that's what people saw on the outside. What were you experiencing on the inside at those moments or in those times?
1: I think generally speaking there was a probably a frustration of like who made this design for my being. And then that frustration I think really sunk down into some grief and isolation where I felt like without having words, I felt like there was a place where I could tell the system I was in was broken, but everybody at the time, mainstream culture and personal culture defined this as, as normal, as this is where you should be. And so it was a little bit of like being gaslit by entire sure. culture. It's yeah. like a, it's a really powerful situation to be in. And then I think as I started seeing mostly in the queer community first, a lot of the mm-hmm. queer men. Trans men and all the folks really started to feel they feel a lot more. They led the way, <laughs> they modeled it in a way that's this black men struggle. And so, I seen just masculine bodies break out of the mold of traditional society gave me somewhat of an a opportunity to imagine. And so, I was able to, and you know, this is kind of layered like part of working on touch plan, part of working on your tears is also working on your homophobia, it's part of that. It's, it's not separate. So there's a way I I raised a very conservative Christian. So mm-hmm. I hold a whole lot of doctrines early on. But yeah. they're not just Christians, it's the masculine. So I had to start coughing up, hacking mm-hmm. up a lot of that homophobia material that I didn't even know was there. Again, when you're smothering your emotions, you don't realize your biases. They're just kind of stuck behind the numbness. Mm-hmm. And so I think as you start peeling it back, you start realizing, oh snap, I have these really deep, ingrained belief structures. And so I it was it was me kind of. I felt okay on the surface. I felt isolated a little bit deeper. I felt grief if you go a little bit deeper. And then I felt some deep fear and terror if you go a little bit farther back. If you go farther back and look at it, honestly, that's kind of what that fear and terror is probably what kind of blew out my face when I started to cry for the first time. The first time I could just be that kind of collapsed human and not hold the role as whatever has been projected upon my body and identity and then rebuild from there
0: yeah yeah speaking to the deep emotions that are tied behind all of these things on that deeper level I'd be curious if you could you know I'm presuming how the homophobia and transphobia is connected to this but I'd love if you could flesh that out of seeing that connection of how that was connected to your ability to be emotional to have platonic touch and how those two things converge
1: yeah, so there's a lot of things here. So I'm trying to just kind of succinctly only because when, you, when I go back to my homophobia and transphobia material, I'm going to go just a little bit farther back. I think it was 1968-ish when the there's a protest, a very famous protest. You see Black men walking going, I am a man, just walking kind of in public. And the reason I say that, I, I reference this often, is that there is a struggle of how oppression set on the black community and particularly on black men is that you might hear in like films or white men refer to adult black men as "Hey boy, get my fill in the blank." Hey boy, what you doing, boy? Boy, boy. They would they would they would really use "boy" as this derogatory term to demean the intelligence and the the so that this kind of sign says "I am a man." Kind of speaks to the the pressure against white oppression of like. I'm just trying to be a man. I'm just trying and I'm trying to be a man. And we and we kind of had to hold this masculine narrative of being human. And so that just was baked into my upbringing as a conservative Christian and a kind of a proud father who really modeled masculinity to me. And I think a very thoughtful way for the most part, but that was baked in the back be a man. And this is what a man does. Yeah. Right. And so we don't get this immediate message of like, oh. You should not like queer folks at all, or you shouldn't like gay folks. That did come in the Christian narrative a little bit, but that didn't really buy into that. What I bought into it, what really got sunk into my bones was masculine bodies can't be like these queer folks because they're weak. That queerness is weakness right? And this it was, it was reinforced reinforcing four years of football in high school. It's reinforcing sure. all my athleticism. So, so this is not just my parents. It's kind of a society kind of over culture. It's kind of laying it nicely into my nervous system before I even had all the tools to know what was happening. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think about that hurt. There's a way in which I could I could see that I had fear and terror based upon trying to be a human being in a white control culture. It's constantly kind of, in sometimes skillfully making me not a full human being. I couldn't I remember I was supporting uh, and it speaks to the drums where I was I'm referring to speaking to uh, one of my mentees was coming out as queer in his home. And I was, they came out and their parent just almost killed them, attacked them. Wow. And one of the things they kept saying was like, parent kept saying, we've worked so hard to just be human. How to be a man. Like, I, how can you not now be like, saying you're not even claiming your your male identity because we fought so hard just to like as black bodies mm. in their mind we fought so hard to be a man now you're now raising your hand saying i don't want to be a man anymore like what yeah. like we we, we could barely say we're human how dare yeah, you yeah. so this is part of the hurt is like totally. when, when the society comes and says you can't be human to have the the it's not audacity but it feels like to have the audacity to be like i'm gonna take this thing that you grandparent fought for just to be a man i'm gonna take that and just Toss it to the wind because I actually have a more complex sexual identity and an identity as a whole that you can imagine. And that's probably why we could imagine it because of the work that they did. There's a way that can feel like erasure. and and so that was in the background too. Mm-hmm. again, not articulated as clearly as is now, but it sits as I started to cough it up, I started to realize choice of identity that I never really had. Mm-hmm. And the maybe envy or discomfort I felt for folks that were choosing their identity identity had to be discussed a bit it had to be slowed down. I didn't have a lot of people having had a conversation right away. Mm-hmm. Um, but it started to happen as I met more folks in the community of like, Oh, what does it mean to have choice over your identity in a way that was kind of put on the black body specifically in America differently. So that was, that was kind of the part. And then then another the part is like, there's a place where how homophobia showed up in my particular trauma story early not early, but like, as I was coughing up was not realizing what my masculine identity actually was, and that when it was questioned, or when it, when when a trans or a queer person questioned it, it just shook my foundation because I wasn't even sure. It was pretty flimsy of like what like when if someone asked me a question like eight years, what does it mean to be a man? I've been like, well, uh, uh, I'm strong. You, you work hard, uh. Uh, I, my brain was like a simple question my brain was short out because I saw these like surface models of it but I had no I couldn't tell you the emotional profile of a black male really at the time I had to like really re-examine and rebuild that so I think that's where I think my whole be showed up is that I didn't have there was a way that I think the queer community has interrogated identity interrogated sexuality interrogated emotional intelligence interrogated a lot of themselves that cis black men are like huh and black and cis bodies and as a whole have just kind of plugged into the, the to the major culture. They weren't able to. They didn't. They were never required to to burn the emotional calories, to interrogate their identity, to ask questions about is this working for me? That had not been done. So my homophobia came up when the, there was the kind of a clash between the lack of interrogation of my identity, and the modeling of like there might be something more that's actually more sustainable. And that frustration or lack of clarity falling right back into the male trauma story of like well then. Then violence or shutdown or numbness or all the above becomes the immediate response instead of slowing down tenderness and investigation or curiosity, these are not words that that felt easily accessible early on. So I think that's how my homophobia, you know, arrived early. Mm. Yeah. And I think there is a, I'll say in closing here on this idea of how my homophobia showed up is that as I examined the, the the lynching history and the exploitation of black bodies in slavery, is that there there is a place where we read about the the buck breaker. Breaking black men so white slave masters would would assault black bodies to show their power over and there's there's a way that that still ripples through the black community and I feel like fits into my lineage because I have traced back my lineage to Castor, Louisiana, I believe on my mom's side of folks that survived slavery and so because of that there is some I think internalized terror around yeah. outside of consent and violation on multiple levels but specifically being raped by the slave master is a part of the narrative not um discussed near enough but there so i had to kind of just grieve those things um release those things research those things and know that Mm. happened that it doesn't justify a homophobia but clarifies where it was sourced from and then slowly take it down to pieces and 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 rebuild an analysis that doesn't mean that i have to be terrified to cuddle with a a queer gay or trans body and uh, that's been really great that i'm not at this stage in my healing process and touch plan that I have, I have no problem cuddling with all those identities. And that's actually probably one of the more complex ways to show up. I don't know how unfortunate a lot of cis, straight black men that be like, yeah, let's cuddle with other queer folks and whatnot. But it's been a wonderful, um, I think journey for myself to have that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I appreciate you naming that. I think, you know, what I'm hearing is the ways that the societal context are deeply ingrained into how we see the world, how we see other people, right. Instead of, pointing that arrow at yourself and your quote unquote feelings or some ways we're taking that larger structure to look at how these things impact, how we look at other people and our ability to love and connect with other people. And I, I just, sometimes I get a little sad when I hear, you know, the queer community, I, I understand the need for like a more like, you know, fight mentality of people who are in that paradigm of homophobia and transphobia. But I think there's like a larger space of love for the context that people are in, right? And have gone through to unpack some of these narratives. You know, I, I don't think that we should come in with more violence for people who are in that space and struggling to understand how to love people.
1: I agree. yes. Mm.
0: yeah i don't know what that process of love looks like for people in that space you know and how you do mm-hmm. that with boundaries to keep yourself safe when you're connecting with someone like that but the reality is like your journey you know there was so much unpacking in that to get where you're at now like if you were met mm. with aggression you know from a queer person in that space at that time mm. it, you know that wouldn't have been helpful
1: mm. that's so true that's so true and i What's tough is that, you know, Black cis men, one of our first responses to queer and trans folks is violence. You know, we we can, if we don't work on our chunk, that's what comes up early. And so I could get the fear and concern, It's, 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 it's present. And when we can slow it down enough to not be violent or not go to that first to get some space for the terror and fear to be there without any kind of violence to be in a trauma led experience, I feel like it's really revolutionary it's mm-hmm. it's profound i mean this conversation we're having right now is very ungoogleable on so many levels um but i think you're right the more we can see models of it or build that some kind of um just guidelines or boundaries but there's the level of nest making that i think is needed to invite this practice to to surface and be present
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have any ideas on what that looks like or what it was for you? Was it community, people bringing you into deeper love? And like, yeah, what got that moving in terms of, you know, how we can support other people who might be in that space still?
1: You know, it's interesting. I find the most success I've seen is with groups of white folks that are working as a lifelong practice on their anti-racism. They're predominantly queer, non-binary folks. But I found that in that environment, there's a critical mass of people that have been able to be on this journey to ask the questions and not waiting for people to go majority to ask. And then I combine that with black bodies that have the capacity to receive questions, engage with, you know, I think about the micro fusion dance community. I think about some parts of the contact improv where these not always the case because these are oftentimes really white unexamined places but there's the collection of these groups that are really working on anti-racism really well and there's a way where bodies are dancing they're being mm-hmm. together and then there's like maybe there's a um, 60 white folks in there that have worked in their racism so now they've got a couple of black bodies that are there and if i'm a black cis male I might show up and go oh some really attractive people here but yet i'm not sure how many folks are actually even into cis straight bodies at this moment but they're also being very thoughtful they're not like fetishizing me all of a sudden there's this way in which i find that the fusion community the dance fusion community micro fusion specifically because very slow very intimate very tender in nature contact improv very similar where your your bodies are being together as sure. touch It's it's an opportunity for us to kind of examine in a in a, in a um there's no there, sensuality is is present but it's it's not the main focus I mean, at least most cases it's it's really about being human and bodies. So I think some of these environments are great on ramps. I think they need to be followed up with a, a robust community that is doing the work on like we are going cause what happens is a black body will show up in these environments and they'll get, you know, prayed after in in a very much like black brute way and then they'll respond as black brute. And it's like, again so we aren't but when you I think when the work is being done in that space, the black bodies can show up and not be just navigating too much oppression, but they can show up tenderly. Cause one of the ways that I think in these environments, white supremes can show up is that they start fetishizing the Black people by start projecting violence on the Black body. So there's a way in which when that's happening in these queer and trans communities that there's, there's a way in which the Black body can drop into tenderness and vulnerability. And all of a sudden, that doesn't have a trauma-led violence piece when they're doing a beautiful dance with a trans or queer person they normally wouldn't ever be in contact with because they're actually in that vulnerable open state. And so I think that's where I would say in, in the wild world of 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 America, you might find some like, wait a minute, is that is that brother actually being tender with a whatever fill in the blank identity that he typically wouldn't be and vice versa. So I think that's where I would, I, I've done a lot of workshops and work around this community and still am. And, and I think these are places where I've been like a little amazed how mm-hmm. it did start to happen. So I think that could be an example of a place.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the ripples that that creates out in the community when you have those sorts of connections, yeah. right?
1: yep very
0: powerful very powerful I know a little bit earlier you talked about I believe I heard a platonic plan is that what platonic touch plan is that what I heard
1: oh yeah having a comprehensive platonic touch plan yeah
0: I'd love to hear more what's inside that plan
1: yeah so so we have a program that we teach called touch specialists it's actually changing next year to touch activists and so one thing we want to invite people to think about is like how do you build so you you see a brother or a person that you're that's chronically under touch is quite clear we can, we can get to how we can arrive there of understanding that and you identify and you might be the only person in the space to go i am going to be an advocate a support to making sure we use myself as an example to make sure aaron has a comprehensive touch plan right and so some people that are like massage therapists or Cuddlers like, oh, great, Aaron, you come over at four o'clock and we'll cuddle and then you'll feel better and you go home. And, and, and that's, yes, that is kind of, but not really what a touch specialist does. A comprehensive touch plan for someone from a touch specialist or touch activist is really about evaluating the whole entire environment the person is in, tracking the trauma story and personality that person is holding, and then building thinking and sometimes physical practice to make touch more accessible. And when we find someone that has met all their touch needs, we use a phrase called touch balance, mm-hmm. to get someone from in a chronically under touch state, to touch balance. Now I'm very clear, I would say a big, vast majority of people that we're with don't get to touch balance right away, it could be years before you get there. But it matters to create an environment where they're on their way to becoming touch balanced. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's so much nourishment and comfort well before you reach touch balance that is worthy to get there. So we're not just trying to not say we're we're going to be miserable until we reach touch balance. There's so much pleasure in balance. So then you say, what does that look like? What is yeah. it? What is what like to build a conference touch plan? Is as complex as it can be. There's some very simple things that we found to have in place. And so for your audience, I'm just going to give kind of how we look at it. So one of the course questions I ask, I'll ask Aaron. So Aaron sits down. You're my touch specialist hypothetically. You say, Aaron. Can you just give me a list one to 10 of all the ways you receive touch? Mm. And if I'm a typical black male in America, I'll be like my girlfriend, my wife, Did I say my girlfriend and my wife, uh, my girlfriend. So Aaron, I need 10, my girlfriend, my girlfriend, my girlfriend, my girlfriend, mm. my girlfriend, a partner, and they stop. And, and so that, that, and that's, you're lucky. Sometimes it's like, not even my girlfriend. I just, i, I I'm, I'm single right now. So basically I don't have anything. I box. Yeah. I, I don't know. There's a way I might get some kind of value even look at that as a touch plan. So, what we want to do is that we we want to go through the program. I got some same questions six months from now, or three months from now, or two weeks from now, usually. I say, Aaron, what is your touch plan? I'll be like, oh, you know, like touching the earth with my feet mm. for 20 minutes in the morning is number one. Number two is really slowly petting my cat with intention. Number three is holding hands and listening to a fellow black male that is a dear friend of mine and then I look them in the eyes and then we actually hold and hug each other for at least two minutes, mm. you know, continuously. Yeah. And then I, I find that going outside for just 10 minutes to take it off my shirt and just noticing the sun on my skin mm. and how the vitamin D is touching me for like just 10 minutes or maybe it's me noticing the wind. Oh, also I think that it's going out to our little pond or our little area and put my feet in the water a bit. And slow myself down, not just casually let me, let me know what it feels like to be felt, to be invited in that experience. And then, so you'll find it real quickly. By the time you hit 10, at the very bottom, I might say, oh, also my lover, my partner, my wife is there too. It's not that they're devalued, but you'll find that by the time I do all those things, by the time I get to my partner, I'm not looking at them and it's a like trauma state of like, you have to compensate for 20 years of me not being touched. And you only mm. can come in one kind of, well, if I'm a black brute narrative hurt, I'm only can come in aggressive sexual contact. It's the only way I can show up. And you better, if you don't, I'm going to be panicking. I'm going to be aggressive. I'm going to be, that is so much for a woman, to no hold to that trauma story, 20 years of untouched narrative. But if you go through a place where you are waking up every morning and walk with your feet on the ground, you are touching your chicken, your your cats, your other, fe- it's amazing mm. that when you show up to your sexual space, when you show up to your romantic partner, even though you might still not be at the complete touch balance, man, you are so much more grounded and like, hey, oh, you said, oh, you're not in the mood today. Not a problem. Let's just, let's just go do something else. It's not like, what are you talking about? It's been a- it's, it's, there's, there's no, there's such a, you actually consent actually makes sense mm-hmm. for their nervous system, right? Mm. And so, so there's a way when you're on your way to that space. So, A comprehensive touch plan is a variety of ways in which we can get nourishment and it's not only our sexual partner it's not only our that's not it the other thing is where are you located see i'm in feeling california so there's no fusion dance community there's no cuddle specialist that's in portland los angeles seattle i'm in feeling a small Little desert town doesn't have that kind of space. So as a touch specialist, I'm going to take that in consideration. I'm not going to project I'm in Seattle. You're going to go go on the internet and find a, the local cuddle gathering. No, there's no cuddle gatherings in Phelan. The idea is that a, a touch specialist will understand that geographic location is important. Then there's economics. A touch specialist will understand, well, how much free time do you have? Are you working class? Are you wealthy? Are you, you know, where are you at? So if you are working class, that means you're working every day, nine to probably eight or 10, and you're tired. So you only have a little bit of time. Right. So like, a touch specialist is going to build practices of like self-touch, which is going to be on that list of how do you just bring touch for yourself? Because you're in a feeling, you don't have those those, those easy communities to get ex- access to. And, and at the same time, we're working on finding out, well, how close geographically is the next contact improv class. So for me, in a feeling, it's an hour and a half. So I'm a working class person. A touch specialist might put together a fundraiser to make sure I have gas then travel to, and a touch specialist might even go there beforehand and check out and say, is this place safe for a black cis male to show up here that's on his journey of being crunking in touch? Can I build a relationship before he gets there and say, hey, I have this young man that's coming, he's amazing, he needs touch, but also this is where he's at in his healing, do I have a couple of folks here that can really drop in and not be fetishizing him or not exploiting his vulnerability of being in touch to to fulfill some white fantasy for them? Mm -hmm. And so you get ahead of those trauma stories before he shows up if you can. This is what a touch specialist does. They go and prepare the room, they prepare the nest, they think about the economics, the location, the hurts in his family, the hurts in his conservative Christian is touch. Yeah. Also terrifying because Christianity says suspect. So a touch specialist really examines the whole being, and then writes up a plan, and then offers it to the individual and says, "Does this feel like something you can hear?" Yeah. I kind of skillfully offer it to you in a way that's not one for your under nervous system right now. Mm-hmm. You trust me and know that I'm here. I can give you a hug. I can massage you for. But I'm also here for you to have. You empower you, co-create a touch plan for you. And that can take a couple of days. I can take 12 months. When I think about my TEDx talk was the first conference of touch plan road, That's the title of my talk is why I waited 12 months for a hug. Ooh. And the reason was, is that it took me 12 months to really write my first, I know I was writing it, my first conference of touch plan with a young black man. Mm. It took us 12 months. Mm. It took us 12 months. Yeah. It's a lot of preparing in the room. So, that touch specialist, that's the waters they're swimming in. It's not a cuddle, a professional cuddler. I love professional cuddlers. Touch specialists should have a speed dial, of at least 20 of can <laughs> yeah. call. That's kind of what a touch specialist does. It yeah. has a list of a specific cuddlers mm-hmm. that they know. It's a list of contact improvs. It has a list of, of maybe one of the few cis black cuddle places in the United States. It'll find it and go, that's where it's at. And we'll fly our other black male to that location if it can. I will fundraise, I will try and become a support to nest, but I'm not going to do it to the point that when I step away, they just collapse. The idea is when a touch specialist leaves, that person's empowered and tooled and and doesn't need them anymore, but will be in a a self-given practice. So a touch specialist is really about building something that's not for them, but for the handover that fits that person's experience. And it might mean in some situations that their comprehensive touch plan means that they're still at a cronk and a touch state, but so much further ahead. You might not ever get them to that complete touch, but it's worthy to get them out because there's so many journeys towards touch balance,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: Um, that is still much safer for folks that have experienced men that can't take no, that can't hear about consent as a violation. They feel smothered by consent. They manipulate to get touch needs met because that's the only way they thought they had it in a touch activist does help them I think the consent me and the consent culture has had we've had our we've had our rounds, but I think we've landed on the idea that helping someone heal from being cronkken and touch is a critical part of teaching consent. To teach consent without acknowledging the cronkcket and touch narrative is such an incomplete narrative of healing that i I kind of cringe and and grieve when someone's like, This is how consent works, which I appreciate. But gives no actual tracking of what it actually. It's like if I'm starving. Yeah. If I'm starving. Yeah. And I've been like out in the wilderness for a couple of days. And you take me to a buffet and go, hey, Aaron, I want you to stand here by this buffet. And I, I just want you to smell that food, but do not eat it. Just kind of right. And I know I, I want it clear that when when you say that, if if there was someone that would start to nourish and balance me, and I'm actually fully nourished, and I go to that same buffet and I go, Aaron, you can stand here, don't don't eat it just smell it. Oh my God, I'd like no problem. But tell me when. I'm I'm cool. I have I can wait for hours because I'm not starving. Right. So the way that I that the touch activist addresses that 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 hurt of starving, you know, the scientific term for being cracking a touch is skin hunger. That's mm. skin hunger. Addressing that when you teach the consent pieces, it, it lands as good medicine and not as like someone is, is holding me back from the dead. You know, it's 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 a, it's a much more balanced response. It's been amazing to see the difference in someone that is closer to touch balance receiving consent training versus someone that's in the middle of their trauma story of being chronically untouched and trying to receive consent training given dance or sensual camp or whatever it might be. It's just, it's just, it's an obvious thing. So I just encourage all teachers out there that are teaching on that topic to hold that wisdom of the chronically untouched trauma story, included in their curriculum, if they can, or
0: Mm -hmm. get portions of it.
1: Even the part we talk about in this this podcast is adding that wisdom to it to be a significant interruption to how they teach it
0: yeah and it's important for dismantling rape culture because we all have needs for touch and so i hear exactly what you're saying and it it frequently as a therapist comes into the room too if i have clients who are don't have those needs met and then it comes into our relationship and having to navigate that as the therapist holding that space right like Mm -hmm. i'd be curious what would you want to say about consent culture and understanding the narrative of the chronically untouched person like how do you support people in that space
1: one of the first things identifying it. I think a lot of times it's, I think rape culture, I think that was like something I heard in whispers, but didn't hear it loud and clear until, you know, the Me Too movement got momentum and rape culture became kind of a a phrase going around. And I think it's important to, the internet's kind of this way, is that it'll say a phrase like rape Mm -hmm. culture and we'll just kind of say, and we won't slow down and go, wait a minute, what is the actual development of a rape culture environment for a young man. Well, yeah. there's a lot of things that support that, but one of them is being chronically untouched. Part of it is it's not having skillful, emotional, intelligent training models to express things. It is. I mean, I don't know a lot of mothers, parents that are raising untouched children, but have a deep desire to not support rape culture, and and it's not that. They, the, the video games aren't being there. They aren't watching movies that support that, but they're missing the power of a 13-year-old boy having the skill to still cuddle and be close and yeah. be tender and be vulnerable is a part of dismantling rape culture. I think for me, that's important. So I would say identifying it yeah, and really letting ourselves settle. And I think what's attached to, from my lens, is to get really exposed to the invention of the Black Brute, the invention of how the white male gaze has been shaping sexuality in America as a whole, which might feel obvious, but there's a way that we can see it. Cinematically, I hear a lot of feminists say, you know, the white male gaze is here. When they critique modern day pornography, the white male gaze is here. That's 100% right. They're 100%. The white male gaze is something that I had to really start to track of how cinematic films and budgets are set to fulfill sure. the white male gaze. That's clear. That's not new information. But what's also a part of the white male gaze is a long history of terror and fear of the black brute. When I look at the cinematic film, The Birth of a Nation, get exposed to how that can show up. So even if you're a a white therapist working with mostly white people, there's a way in which lynching and brute material and and how that shapes so much of our sexuality in America and our lack of touch and supports rape culture is having a more complete exposure of history. And so I think that will be something I would just invite them to know that history. So when they start to reach for, they can bring a comprehensive observation of the black roots, not just a phrase of like a modern day black male, they know there's a lineage. There's a lineage of it. And then the second thing is for them to understand their capacity to stay looking, to stay looking at these very tender, painful parts of American history that America is really excited about erasing. And so I think for me, you gotta be a little, a little more aggressive and assertive to really understand that. But then I think to me, I would invite especially therapists to build a list of questions that help them really hone in on where the hurt is in the chronic touch self. And so I think there's questions I have learned to build. And, and, and one of the ones that I hold is where does my tenderness feel most interruptive? Like where does it feel most interruptive? So for example, if if I'm tender in my home, Right, I live in a tiny house in the desert with people that understand me. It is not interruptive. It's like that they all expect it now of myself. But if I go to a the Los Angeles and there's like a, I go to the club, go to the hip hop club, hip hop dances happening, and I'm getting my groove on, right, and I'm having a good time. And maybe whatever has, I feel some emotions. I go over, so and start to weep a little bit. It's like have a little crying moment. Mm-hmm. It's interruptive. It's like, what's yeah. wrong? Brother? Is he overdose on drugs? Is he, is he losing his mind? There's yeah. a way which is like immediately interrupted because in that landscape of maybe 100 to 200 people, you're not going to find a black cis male body being tender unless he's having a complete breakdown. He's not just being, right? So I say that is that as a therapist, understand whoever your subject is, where they can go and receive touch and where they can't go, where they can go and be fully human, where they can't go. And so if you're a cis black man for myself, there's a small little bubble where I can go. If it's if you're a, maybe a queer or a white bodied person living in the Northwest, well, there's this, you can go to Whole Foods, you can go to Chunk in the co-op, you can go to a dance fusion, you can just cry, scream, rage. And it's like, that's what white people do at times at those places. It's fine. You're fine. You're, you're just having a complex. We're holding space for you. It's, it's, normal. it's not that impressive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's, they should have the ability to do it, but they have a lot more. So the, being able to therapists therapist to depending who you are reaching for, the vast difference of their actual lived experience in the world. And if we talk about, you know, darker to the skin, height, muscle mass, all that does take into consideration of what people expect of that body. So I think having those questions where you can really examine yourself and your own unconscious biases and maybe more conscious biases, and also being able to build thoughtful questions to help flush out where that person shows up on a spectrum of America who deserves and doesn't deserve touch. That would be, I think, very helpful yes. to then build your healing practice around that wisdom. And I think you will, a, a most marginally skilled therapists will be able to really find a well of healing and helping and support that's available for that topic. But unfortunately most therapists I work with and have worked with have a hard time mm. looking at that material. as as I think that they should think, yeah. but that's my invitation.
0: Yeah, that's all we can do, right, is invite. And I'm so thankful you're on this podcast. And hopefully, I know a lot of therapists follow this podcast. And hopefully, we can share this, right? Like, let's get this out there. Let's have more understanding of, yes, the context of your client and the unique situation that they are going through in terms of getting access to touch and their needs met. Huge. And to not recognize that context, I would say, is a failure of the therapeutic relationship.
1: Yeah. I think so. But you know therapists, you, you can't touch your clients. And so touch is not mm. something we talk about in, in, in school. And so I, I most therapists can't touch their clients. I'm sure there's somatic killers that do that some of that right. work, but yeah. just on the average professionally trained, it's like you sit over there and it, how how you feeling?
0: Yeah, yeah. We're trying to dismantle it, change it a little bit. I'm... I
1: know, I know. But I'm saying that's 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 the that's totally. the status quo. If we it line is. up hundred therapists, it is you know, but that's that's the you know uh, yeah i know holding his hand look at him in the eye could be uh, yeah I, the, 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 as many hands as i hold it's shocking how much different it is when i reach out and hold a black man's hand and say can i hold your hand totally i just want to hear you and while i'm hearing you i'm gonna hold your hand just look at you versus me just sitting back going i go yeah share what you guys share you just let's look off it but like i want to just a little hand hold Sometimes I just do a little finger. If They say, sorry. I remember brother's like, I can't hold your hand. I'm not ready, but can I touch your foot? Can I take my foot and just touch your foot? I'm like, yeah, touch my foot. Just that, just that. Yeah. That's a mile right there. Totally. Just mile. So I'm just saying, I'm not trying to get any therapist fired, but just saying that.
0: Hey, I'm trying to put a dent in the field.
1: Changes. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> just, just, that, just, just track it. Just track where, where, where we can be human. And uh, sure, it's, it's a place to grow there
0: totally and I think that's why we need healers outside of the model right outside of that system that can speak to this directly right like surrogate partners cuddlers right your touch healing I mean this is so deeply needed it is absurd but you know that Uh I know that and so I think eventually we'll move towards more models of that but I'm imagining and maybe you can speak to this you know that person that you talked about doing that 12 months of planning for a hug I can imagine how much transformation occurs for that person in their life and so many different areas. But, you know, I'd love to hear what you've seen in your work with
1: people. Yes. I think for me, one of the first things oftentimes, particularly black men say to me, that I work with they're like, ah, oh, I'm good, I'll, I'll, I'll leave them, i I'm good, I'm fine, good. And my response is great, great, you're fine. And I'm not here trying to force touch on you, I'm not trying to give you something you don't want. Right. But what we find is as we start to work with earth is one of my go-tos. Hey, you wanna put your feet on the ground? Do you Love wanna that. sing together? I have these clay balls that we make and we can just hold them and just you know, have them in our hands. And as we start to soften and start to, to just ask some questions around like, what would it feel like to receive touch? So what I've seen is when the patience is present, transformation is inevitable because i realized that patience is an anti-capitalist practice Mm. another one that's really anti-capitalist but you might not feel it right away anti-american almost is listening Mm. we live in a culture where listening is is not sexy it's not the life-saving act that it is and a lot of us don't even have models of what listening looks like outside of maybe some trauma from public school so i think for me i think listening with a tender body mm. art and mind to bodies like men black men marginalized identities ultimately everybody but i look at those folks that oftentimes are not heard is the first hug mm. yeah i think most people forget that I waited 12 months for a hug, but what was I doing for 12 months? I was doing what we call the first hug, and that is listening. Oh. Listening. There's a phrase that I birthed in that year and a half, and I said, hugging, holding, snuggling is a life-saving act. Well, if I was going to enhance that quote, if I was going to answer that quote, I would add that the first hug is listening. The first hug. And so I think the first touch, the first, before the pinky, before the, I lay you on the clay earth and we we cover you with sand and we sing songs, before we get to that point is, I want to hear you. I want to hear you. Not just my ears, not just with my heart, not just my body, but with all of those things. And so for me, the transformation that I saw with this amazing young Black man was he started to understand what it felt like to be heard. Mm. Not perfectly, but heard more than he has been heard prior to that place where his no's were heard, his yeses were heard, that his fear was heard, and that when he asked for a hug, that there was zero confusion about his humanity, there was zero confusion about his, his sexual identification. It was, it was that we just be heard in that tender ask of, I want to be close to your body for a moment and receive a hug. So I think for me, I think that was one of the biggest transformations for myself as a, at that point, I wasn't touch activist or touch specialist. I was just a brother trying to figure out how to figure out hugs. Totally. <laughs> totally. Sorry, a touch plan. I didn't have, uh, I didn't have all this, you know, yeah. 10 years later, we have all this language like, oh, you you're, you're, oh, second year, Touch specialist. You go into the physical the train, but you, you know we were just like wake up in the morning with my eyes. What happened? Go what chuck is happening? Like, Google's not helping me, so I just want to name that. Um, the transformation was a lot of me learning when I was looking for like a team of therapists that had all kind of drugs that I was like, and what I needed. I mean, drugs are needed at some point, sometimes, but it's more about I didn't realize the drug I was needing was the practice of like, oh, this thing called listening. Is not just me going and staring at somebody for like five minutes and going, I listen, this is really a place where I get to like integrate, slow down, take my feet off and put them on the ground, to allow myself to to track my energy with the earth and what is actually happening and why have I been having rubber shoes between me and the earth for so long? And what does this room feel like? And how does this room support or not support this person showing up in a tender way? Like really just tracking, being being energy sensitive to the space and I think a lot of us have that in our bodies, but I think we're going so quickly. And that's why I think that like listening is such an anti-capitalistic structure. Because when I consult with businesses around racism, I go, where, where, where do you, Aaron, where do you see, you know, the place we should put most of our effort to dismantle racism in our organization. I say, well, wherever listening is not happening is where racism is thriving. Yeah. And that could apply to this young black man is, where listening is not happening is where the chronic untouched narrative is being supported. The Black Brute narrative is being supported. And so that's what I would say the transmission was for us is we, re- we didn't look at listening as a passive practice. We looked at it as literally the foundation in which everything else was built. Yeah. So it was, it was good. It was good. Yeah. I get chills just thinking back how, how important that was found in Feeling California. I'm kind of amazed that, yeah we're able to to notice that medicine
0: yeah i'm feeling so touched by it too just the amount of intimacy that it is there mm-hmm. when you really listen to someone fully and meet them where they're at you know that person coming in saying mm-hmm. i don't need touch you don't come back at them mm-hmm. and be like well i know better than you actually and we're you know what i mean yeah. being able to actually hear what they're saying and meet them there yeah transformational yes oh we need you Mm. You need more of you in this work in the world. Mm. Mm. Truly. Mm. Is there anything you'd want to say to your younger self? You know, someone who's resonating with this, that younger self that hadn't cried for all of those years. Is there anything you'd want to say to that person?
1: Yeah, I would say the magic is in the small micro movement. Mm, yeah. The massive transformation is in the small movements. Don't look for big changes. Just deeply, deeply sink into those simple steps. Get super excited about. I think about those folks that work in like physical therapy. They're folks that are recovering from big accidents and they get someone's hand to move just a little bit and they go,
0: Yeah. <laughs> Right. There's movement in the
1: hand and then totally. two years later the person's like chucking playing basketball and ducking backwards and doing anything. But it's just that 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 physical therapist knows that just the finger moving a little bit is like the miracle. That yeah. is where I think I would say, young Aaron, get really excited about that little bit of emotion, a little bit of a idea of a tear. Get pumped about that. Don't look over at this very comprehensive of crying, complex person that's gone. No, just just get pumped about. Those little pieces, if you can stay into those little pockets of success, you will build whatever emotional, mental healing you're seeking is in those increments. And don't let the speed, the convenience of our kind of fast-paced society to know that those inches, those increments are worthy to raise your hand and joy about.
0: Yeah, those little seeds that grow mm. over time, over years, small steps. Yeah. Mm. yeah, so powerful. And I also, I like to hold space for the dream, right? Like, you know, we've talked a lot about the work, but I'm curious, the vision, the dream, getting past these parts of our society. Like, what do you dream of for humanity and for
1: people? Well, for me, you know, we, we're we in the middle of a land transfer of 189 acres in northern california where i would like to have regular groups of black body people starting with but people go majority extended to but prioritizing those folks that are don't have space to come be in immersed in nature and to build community and norms around that and once that gets flushed out and we have a critical mass of bodies that are at touch balance that we get access to more land throughout the United States. So maybe the Northwest and the Midwest and East Coast. So no matter what region of the country you're in, you can be like, I need to go somewhere where I can get a a really comprehensive care where my food and my nature-based practice are allowing me to really drop into healing. That would be huge. And then eventually I think there is a scalable place where as as common as you see a Starbucks or a McDonald's, you might see a oh, well, that's a little cut, it's a little cut restaurant space I can go into and maybe get like organic food and sit up in the corner. And there's a professional touch activist comes over and checks in on me. And there's maybe a therapist nearby or to be called virtually and you can drop in. And it's like, oh yeah, but I'm great. And I can get back in the car. And it's like, I got, I still get Starbucks. We get, we get like of touch care um, that's available. And I would love for the medical industry to really start to recognize how critical this is for our, our folks that are in beds and that are unable to be into the world to have touch specialists and activists show up for them. That would be, you know, maybe that's beyond my lifetime, but that would be great. I think if we can feed people burgers and, and, and fast food national, that was a weird idea many years ago and now it's normalized. So I hope that maybe that becomes a part of the landscape that instead of golden arches, maybe there's some kind of like golden hands or something that you go, Oh, I get off this truck, stop exit. There's a, there's a, Okay, maybe I'm being a part of myself. Let's dream. Start... Let's dream. I'm all for the dream. <laughs> but there's a way in which, however, it shows up, if it be an app or it be a physical store, that I hope that touch plans for people is not this obscure, rare, shocking practice, and that trauma tracking and, and skillful understanding of it is not just that we're we're kind of catering to the the the, the mainstream culture who deserve touch, but really going to places where people are forgotten and remembering them from prisons to elderly homes to, yeah, just all the places where where I find the chronic kind of touch folks are there and, and making sure they're interrupted and, and building vocabulary for the world to hear. So it's not when we hear chronic kind of touch people are like, what does that mean? What is that about? It's like, oh, I understand exactly what that is and how we can get ahead of it. It's like before before we or consent culture, before we knew about Me Too, there's a way we didn't have language about. Now you say these words people know what you're talking about. So I hope that this language becomes more in our culture so we can start to interrupt it. That's my dream
0: may it be so may it be so right i mean there was a world before even the word trauma you know that wasn't a thing until yep. a certain yep. you know context mm-hmm. of society where we started using that yep. word and now look at how we understand mm-hmm. that now so i mean yes talking about these things i mean for me i'm sitting and thinking about like the world of psychology and how you know someone would be put in an inpatient hospital unit mm-hmm. for these sorts mm-hmm. of things compared to mm-hmm. the dream of what you're talking about of getting into the mm-hmm. earth having access to food connection can community touch. I mean, I don't know, but that dichotomy of like a hospital and that seems very stark to me. And I think we need to move in towards a world of community connection. And yeah, I'm all for your dream and holding space to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to hold space too, in case, you know, we talked about a lot of different things, but whenever I'm closing the conversation, I also hold space for the guest. If there was something that we talked about that maybe, or something that we didn't talk about during our conversation today that you'd like to say to the listeners or any other topics of conversation that maybe we didn't hit to that you want to talk about.
1: It's funny, I forgot to mention singing. Mm. not like as a performance but singing as a part of a touch practice yeah. i just want to just invite a reminder anyone that's been in our touch specialist program we do a lot of singing and singing of a very one act. but i have found that amongst the things like nature and food and and listening singing has been a deep medicine i just want to encourage folks that might hear this podcast at any point that we need your hands we need your thinking this is not a finished thought this is a organic, living, critical mass of thinkers taking on a topic that's so much more growing. So that's what encourage them to add their thinking to it, add their wisdom to it, reach out and be in contact with our org and other folks associated with us to help this move this movement forward. Mm-hmm. So, invitation.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But Aaron, I don't have a good singing voice. What do you say to me?
1: Oh my goodness.
0: I'm sure so many people have that thought when they hear that they're like, no.
1: There's no such thing. <laughs> I yeah. have a good singing voice. People are like Aaron, you have not heard me sing. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and I just want to say that one of the biggest griefs of the oppressive nature of America is that we've monetized and put hierarchies on everything. And your voice is the whole thing. And I I think when I, I do singing circles all over the United States, and I, I give this speech at every song circle, mm-hmm. and I say to them that your voice is a birthright. It's a birthright. And I've never heard a baby mm. and babies, all of the babies be singing. Ah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. And then we're all just like, yeah, you keep singing, totally. you keep singing. And it's because capitalism had came in there and said that that little noise has to be paid for monetized. And so I think wow. for us, I would say that you, if you feel like you don't have a singing voice, it's just a result of the capitalist culture saying that we can't make a profit off of your magical voice that we want to then discard it because not fitting in a little little bit of a narrow space. And so I just wanna encourage you to know that we all have an embodied experience of singing without that stress in our bodies. I'm encouraged to go back and remember that. I invite daily simple practice of just sounding to rebuke that, that hurt. And I, and some people say, Aaron, I think my throat actually starts to close. Like I feel pain in my throat. I said, just do it in increments, but your voice is needed here. And so what I'm talking about here is not singing like you might hear on YouTube. I'm talking about singing that you do as a human. This is not a performance. It's breathing. It's eating. It's touch. It's singing. It's welling. It's grief. It's orgasm. It's orgasm and grief, that singing. I hear people weeping and I said, do you ever hear someone weeping and you go, you're weeping off pitch. Can you lift your pitch a oh. little off pitch and you're weeping? No, you don't yeah. do that. People are weeping. You're just like, you cry. same thing. This, your voice is, ah, it's you. Yeah. It's animal. It's human. It's raw. It's vulnerable. And sometimes it does come out like an opera professional singer, but it's not necessarily prioritizing that as now, then that word is more important. That is the monetization of your voice. And we're not trying to monetize your voice. We're trying to see the human. That's why I say something like that. That's what I would say.
0: Totally. <laughs> and I think we really need that message. Yeah. And what a different world it would be if we had more people with their feet in the earth singing.
1: Ooh. Uh oh.
0: I know. Uh-oh. I'm I'm talking out of a revolution. Job. I'm talking about <laughs>
1: Might be out of a job if you're talking like that. <laughs>
0: yeah, hey, I think that's what we want, right? We want that. That would be a different world. So I hope it happens <laughs> in our lifetime, or or way beyond, with more of this. Uh, Ugh, yeah. Uh, um, well, if you feel complete, so I can guide us towards a closing question that I ask every guest on the show.
1: I feel complete. Okay.
0: So I ask every guest, what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal?
1: I would say I wish people knew how to grieve. And it was more normal to have public grief.
0: To allow those emotions and to allow people to just be to with allow, you in that.
1: Just be right there.
0: Yeah. That there's no right or wrong way to do that.
1: You're unagreed. I'm unagreed getting there but still under Mm -hmm.
0: and so much of the work today that you shared with all the listeners will hopefully bring more people to that space of being able to grieve to in whatever way that looks like for them but to really feel those emotions yeah you're doing such powerful work and I just want to state again how much we need you in this world Mm. and the work that you're doing I, I can't even imagine the lives that you're touching through this quite literally touching right through this powerful work.
1: Thank you so much. It's been Mm -hmm. a really great conversation. It's so good. I'm glad we landed it today.
0: Yeah, yes, yes, me too. For the listeners who are connecting with you and your work, where would you want to plug your work so that they can find all of your links? I'll have that in the show notes below, but just shouting it out here, where can people find your stuff?
1: Yeah, you can go to cutproject.org and message me there you can go to holisticresistance.com and message me there sign up for the newsletter and instagram is cut.project and find me there those are easy places to get you can dm me or email me through any of those websites and uh i'll get back to you
0: yeah well thank you aaron for joining us today and sharing your message with all the listeners
1: oh thank you
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast and head on over to modernanarchypodcast.com to get resources and learn more about all the things we talked about on today's episode. I want to thank you for tuning in and I will see you all next week.